I wanted this week to, to talk about the relationship between uh, uh, value and uh, money. Most of uh, Marx's theoretical discussion occurs using value terms, that is labor values. Almost all of his empirical examples and almost all the data we have about the world is of course uh, expressed in pound shillings and pence in money terms. So um, the question arises what's the relationship between labor values as Marx theorized them and the money terms. Uh, are we to assume that uh, money is an accurate representation of value? <coughs> Uh, if not, why not? And if not, what are the consequences? Um, is it possible that uh, money systematically distorts uh, values in some ways, even as it uh, represents them? And uh, here my, I guess my history as a geographer comes in. I kind of think of maps and map projections and the relationship between maps and map projections and the realities and uh, one of the things I think we should uh, be aware of is if there are di systematic distortions as occurs with all forms of map projections then we should be aware of what they are so that we don't uh, actually misread uh, the data in relationship to the value uh, or vice versa. So this is, uh, for me, a rather important topic because also um, in a lot of Marxist writings you find people kind of talking about the theory and value terms and then suddenly they produce a mass of data all in money terms as if there's no potential problem in this whatsoever. No, I'm not saying that's illegitimate, I'm just saying that uh, before we accept any of the data uh, and any of the monetary information we have, we should have a good idea as to what the critical relationship is between uh, money and value. Uh, without that, I go back to my map projection thing, without that it would be like trying to cross the Atlantic and the only information you had was an interrupted more wider projection which has of course a great big gap down the center of it and I think it would be rather difficult to do. Now, uh, let me go back to uh, the foundation of this and I have a, a bit of a manuscript which I'm going to utilize. Uh, I have a few empty boxes which I want to take up uh, uh, towards, uh, towards the end. Um, value uh, is a social relation that we established at the very beginning and as such it's immaterial but objective. And I cite Marx when he talks about uh, the phantom-like objectivity of value arises because not an atom of matter enters into the objectivity of commodities as values. Their status as values contrasts with the coarsely sensuous objectivity of commodities as physical objects. We may twist and turn a single commodity as we wish. It remains impossible to grasp it as a thing possessing value. The value of commodities is, like many other features of social life, such as power, reputation, influence, charisma, and the like, an objective social relation that craves a material expression. In the case of value, 
This need is met, Marx claims, through what he calls the dazzling form of money. Now Marx is very careful with his language. He refers to money mo almost exclusively as the form of expression or as the representation of value. He scrupulously avo avoids the idea that money is value incarnate or that it is an arbitrary symbol imposed by convention on exchange relations, which was a widespread view in the political economy of his time. Value, he argues, cannot exist without money as its mode of expression. Conversely, however autonomous it may seem, money cannot cut the umbilical cord that ties it to that which it is supposed to represent. Money and value are autonomous and independent of each other, but dialectically intertwined. This dialectical intertwining has a long history. And here is how Marx thinks of it. In the course of our presentation, he writes, it has become evident that value, which appeared as an abstraction, is possible only as soon as money is posited. On the other hand, money circulation leads to capital and hence can only be completely developed on the basis of capital. And in general, it is only on the basis of capital that circulation can draw within its sphere all the moments of production. Hence, in the course of analysis, not only does the historical character of forms which belong to a definite historical epoch, such as capital, become evident, the determinations like value, which appear to be purely abstract, show the historical basis from which they have been abstracted. And such determinations as belong to all epochs, such as money, show the historical modification which they undergo. Now for Marx, as I've already mentioned, all of the major categories and abstractions that he uses are grounded in the historical experience of capitalism. And those categories, and many of them, have a longer history than the history of capital itself. Uh, we've seen that in the cases of rent, interest and profit on merchants' capital, all of which preceded uh, and uh, capitalism. And this is also the case with money. Money pre-existed. The problem, however, is how to distinguish between those characteristics of money that are unique to capitalism and the generic forms of money that pre-existed it and may, for all we know, continue to be a feature of human organization after capital has been supplanted by some other mode of production. Now, Marx, in writing about this, came to a lot of his conclusions relatively late in the day. And to some degree, he is at fault uh, for sometimes leaving us the impression that value and money are integral and essentially identical with each other. Uh, and it was only uh, just before he published in Capital that he realized that he needed to correct that misapprehension. And there's an interesting distinction between the first, first edition of Volume 1 of Capital and the second edition, which is considered the definitive edition. And one of the main differences is the discussion of money. Uh, and uh, many of the things that surround it, such as the fetishism of commodities. The fetishism of commodities is in Volume 2. It was not uh, in the first chapter of Volume 1. And the discussion of the money that I'm talking about now is also very much in the second edition, not very clearly articulated in the first. So how do we find out 
the specific character of money under capital. And on this, the first chapter of the second edition of Capital is an object lesson on how to do this. Marx begins by noting how the classical political economists drew upon a fictional past, that of Robinson Crusoe and the Robinson Crusoe myth. And this enabled them to naturalize their categories as if they arose out of a state of nature. And if they arose out of a state of nature, they were immutable, unchanging, and unchangeable, immune to historical transformation. Marx, however, refers back to pre-capitalist societies instead to emphasize how categories are embedded in actual histories rather than derived from fictional stories. So after talking about the Robinson Crusoe myth and the classical political economy's use of it, he goes on to say, let us now transport ourselves from Robinson's island, bathed in light, to medieval Europe shrouded in darkness. But he then triangulates, as it were, on the specificities of capital by imagining what the categories might look like after capitalism is gone, after capitalism is transcended. He uses the pre-capitalist past and what the French call the future antérieur of communism as standpoints to understand the nature of contemporary capital. The future anterior is not a utopian imaginary of what might happen, but a specification of what will have happened before we get to communism. Marx then spells it out this way. Let us imagine, for a change, an association of free men working with the means of production held in common and expending their many different forms of labor power in full self-awareness as one single social labor force. Under such unalienated circumstances, the social relations of the individual producers towards their labor and the products of their labor are here transparent in their simplicity, in production as well as in distribution. In this world, there is no hidden hand of the market or laws of motion going on behind everyone's backs that limit our freedoms and certainly no state dictation. It is from these perspectives of before and after that Marx gets behind the veil of what he calls fetishism. It's no accident that what I've been citing to you comes from the section on the fetishism of commodities. These fetishisms suffuse not only the writings of the political economists, but also corrupt our common sense representations of commodity exchange and price fixing markets. Money is a supreme example of such a fetishism. We believe that money possesses social power over us as well as over others, and of course to some degree it does, which is the whole point of Marx's theory of fetishism. It is real, but it's wrong. So how then are we to understand the dialectical relation between value and its representation as money and what contradictions flow therefrom? This was not an abstract theoretical question in Marx's time, but a deeply contested political question that has contemporary echoes, and I think it's interesting to think about these. In the late 1840s, long before he had worked out many of the central ideas of capital, Marx found himself at odds politically, not only with the Ricardian socialists in Britain, but far more importantly, with the imposing figure of Proudhon, who had many followers among the French artisan class. Proudhon and his followers posed the following perfectly reasonable question. Why are capitalists so rich and the working class is so impoverished when all the leading political economists of the time, most notably Ricardo, insisted that economic value was produced exclusively by labor? 
If it was produced by them, why did they not have the benefits of it? Proudhon concluded that the fault lay in the way that labor value was being represented in the market. The irrationality of money and of market exchange was the crux of the problem. What was needed, he suggested, was an alternative, more rational way of measuring labor value, a way which rested directly on the time workers spent laboring. Workers should be paid in labor time chits, labor hours, coupons, or even coins that represented labor hours. This would cure the problem. The Proudhonist movement looked also to restructure the money system. Organize the supply of free credit, reform central banking, and create mutual credit institutions to, so as to solve the problem of social inequality. Now, Marx vehemently objected to these ideas in The Poverty of Philosophy, published in 1847. And the first part of the Grundrisse, the unpublished notebooks from 1857, is also taken up with a lengthy rebuttal of the monetary ideas of Darimon, a close colleague of Proudhon. Since this continues to be a matter of contention, it's useful to pay close attention to the controversy. Marx does not object to many of Proudhon's formulations. Many anarchists depict Marx as doing so, but as you recall from his argument about the precursor to communism, he's very much in the anarchist camp. The principle of the association of laborers with means of production held in common as a necessary condition for communism crops up in capital several times, and it is prominent in Marx's critique of the Gotha program, which is one of the last programmatic statements he wrote. Marx does have, however, a broader perspective on what might be involved, or to be more honest, uh, he came to have a broader perspective on it. His studies of the necessary proportionalities would have to hold between production of means of production and production of wage goods showed that if chronic waste and inefficiency were to be avoided within a complex division of labor, then some way had to be found for associated laborers to come together to plan collectively how to manage and consciously plan production across such divisions. Later Marxists concluded that this should be done by the state, but nowhere in capitalist Marx proposed that. Marx does not object, per se, to the idea that working hours should be remunerated directly according to time spent in production. He was, in the Gotha program, in a limited way in favor of a time-based value system. The problem he had with Proudhon and his followers was their failure to engage critically with the social relations that defined uh, labor value. Under capitalism, it is socially necessary labor time and not actual labor time that counts. The socially necessary implies the existence of some hidden hand or law of motion to which both the capitalist and the laborer are subservient. As early as the 1844 manuscripts, Marx had concluded that value under capitalism was alienated labor, secured by private property and the enclosure of the commons. These were the conditions that produced the social inequalities and degradations to which laborers were subjected in the act of valorization. The objective of socialist revolution was the transformation of the social relations under which workers labored. If there is anything irrational here, it is value at itself, the alienated labor dominated by alien class power. Money was, in Marx's view, a rational representation of irrational labor values, and not, as Proudhon supposed, an irrational representation of a rational value system. And here I quote Marx, to leave production relations intact, 
while attempting to eliminate the irrationality of price formation on the market is inherently self-defeating since it assumes away the very irrationality of value production of which it is the expression. And this was what was wrong with Proudhon's position. Proudhon could hold to it because he accepted the view that money was an arbitrary convention that had been superimposed upon society and which could equally easily be transformed or abolished by political action. In Marx's account, the umbilical cord that connects value with money dialectically is vital to the co-evolution of both. For Proudhon, that umbilical cord does not exist. Even worse from Marx's standpoint, to seek a better mode of representation, like time chits, of alienated labour without offering a critique of the social relations upon which the capitalist law of value is founded was simply to reinforce that alienation. This is what Marx believed Proudhon and his followers, along with many Ricardian socialists, were unwittingly doing. This is why Marx's depiction of the future anterior of communism in volume one of Capital is so important. It depicts associated laborers with means of production held in common, making conscious and therefore unalienated decisions in utter transparency without the social necessities dictated by capital labor relations of domination or the interventions of any external power such as the state or the market. Whether or not Marx was right to take this position is of course open to debate, but the coherence of his argument is hard to deny. It would in his view be a huge error to assume that the social relations expressed in the labor theory of value could be reconstructed by reforms of the monetary system. And he puts it this way, the evil of bourgeois society is not to be remedied by transforming the banks or by founding a rational money system. Just as it is impossible to suspend the complications and contradictions which arise from the existence of money alongside the particular commodities merely by altering the form of money, although difficulties characteristic of a lower form of money may be avoided by moving to a higher form, so also is it impossible to abolish money itself as long as exchange value remains the social form of products. It is necessary to see this clearly in order to avoid setting impossible tasks and in order to know the limits within which monetary reforms and transformations of circulation are able to give a new shape to the relations of production and to the social relations that invest on the latter. Now in that language he is not entirely foreclosing upon the idea that monetary reforms might be good. He's simply saying it doesn't get you out of alienated labor of capital to which capital is prone. Marx in fact posed two basic questions. Here I quote him. Can the existing relations of production and the relations of distribution which correspond to them be revolutionized by a change in the instrument of circulation and the organization of circulation? His answer to this question is, as we've seen, a resounding no. Further question. Can such a transformation of circulation be undertaken without touching the existing relations of production and the social relations which correspond to them? And on this one, Marx equivocates. It would be part of this general question, he says, whether the different civilized forms of money, metallic, paper, credit money, labor money, the last name as a socialist form, can accomplish what is demanded of them without suspending the very relation of production which is expressed in the very category of money, and whether it is not a self-contradictory demand to wish to get around essential determinants of a relation by means of formal modifications. But he then goes on to say, various forms of money may correspond better to social production in various stages. 
One form may remedy evils against which another is powerless, but none of them, as long as they remain forms of money, and as long as money remains an essential relation of production, is capable of overcoming the contradictions inherent in the money relation, and can instead only hope to reproduce those contradictions in one or another form. In the same way that one form of wage labour may correct the abuses of another, but no form of wage labour can correct the abuse of wage labour itself, so one form of money may be handier, more fitting, may entail fewer inconveniences than another. But the inconveniences which arise from the existence of every specific instrument of exchange, of any specific but general equivalent, must necessarily reproduce themselves in every form, however differently. <coughs> We've seen a case of this uh, last week when we were talking about the nature of credit monies. Credit monies enter into the collection of instruments which are available to capital as a means to deal with differential turnover times and in particular to deal uh, with the difficulties of long-term fixed capital investments, uh, the creation of physical infrastructures in the built environment and also long-term investments in the consumption fund. Uh, in order to avoid hoarding vast amounts of cash, credit money becomes crucial. In other words, uh, here is a situation where as capital develops and becomes more and more reliant upon fixed capital and physical infrastructures, more and more does it need to turn to the credit system as a way of actually alleviating the difficulties of its accumulation process. So Marx is, I think, very critically aware that the form of money which is evolving uh, is relating very much to the historical progress and development of the capitalist mode of production itself. But nobody, I think, would, would suggest, and this was, of course, one of the major things I was mentioning last week, that the credit system is actually leading us into an emancipated society free of any alienations. In fact, it spreads alienations, you know, doubles down on their alienations um, very wide. And this is exactly Marx's point, that you, you're not going to overcome the alienations by inventions of the monetary system. And here's an invention of the monetary system that deepens and widens the scope of such uh, alienations. <coughs> now, however, this brings us to a, a contemporary point. There is a lot, of course, contemporary interest in time-sharing, labor exchanges, alternative monies, and local economic trading <coughs> systems as pathways to constructing an anti-capitalist future. And I think it's useful to say something about the relevance of this argument between Marx and Proudhon uh, for our own times. My own observation from the few experiments I know of firsthand and my anecdotal readings uh, about uh, these experiments suggests that Marx's core insight, that at the end of the day it is the social relations that matter, is crucial. Alternative money and exchange systems can work only if the participants refrain from the temptation to game the system for their own personal advantage or to establish power relations within or over it. The systems can work well among people who know and trust each other and are willing to share. And for this reason, such systems tend to remain rather limited in numbers, though still always vulnerable. The advantage of small groups is you can look people in the eye and find out whether you trust them. Uh, but none of us, I think, have ever lived in a world where at some point you thought you trusted them and you couldn't. Um, actually, you often find yourself not trustworthy as well. So, 
but um, this is I think a, a very important point it, it has in fact proven much harder of course to construct large scale more generalizable alternative money and exchange systems among distant others for precisely this reason that it's very difficult to create networks of trust and, and networks of sharing uh, which are not open to abuse uh, contemporary experiments of new monetary forms that do seem to work like Bitcoin are it turns out nothing more than conventional money under a different name and with a different source of issue when as in Argentina after 2001 and in Greece after 2011 breakdowns occur in the normal systems of exchange then alternative monetary systems often arise but they typically do not last long when normality returns hardly surprisingly the proliferation of experiments with local monies and exchange systems has not radically transformed how capitalism in general works and given Marx's conclusions I think we should be very surprised if they did the technologies of money forms and uses have however been revolutionized several times over throughout capitalist history what are we to make for example of the labor theory of value when central banks are engaging in quantitative easing or when credit creation within the banking system seems to be so out of control Whereas the discipline supposedly imposed by values and labor values upon money forms in an insanely speculative economy. Marx recognizes the existence of such problems uh, and he attempts to find answers by going back to the very foundation of his investigations and asking the question to what degree uh, are the money systems in accord with the value systems when commodity exchange becomes a normal social act then one or two commodities crystallize out to play the role of the general equivalent in the capitalist era gold and silver became the preferred form of expression of value but this leads immediately to certain contradictions the use value of gold essentially as commodity becomes the form of appearance of its opposite value which is a social relation the concrete physical labor embodied in gold production becomes the mode of expression of its opposite abstract human labor the private labor involved in gold production takes the form of its opposite namely labor in its directly social form finally and perhaps most significant of all money itself becomes a commodity an external object capable of becoming the private property of any individual thus the social power that derives from social labor becomes the private power of private persons something that's impossible to do with the sociality of value furthermore the individual carries a social power and their bond with society in their pocket now there are a lot of distortions here and the distortions set up are systematic and major rather than accidental and minor while the alienation of labor and the valorization process is foundational for the production of capital it is mighty convenient to have a monetary system that locates social power in general in the hands of a privileged few outside of production itself and within the totality of capital as value in motion in other words class power is very much a product of the monetary system in ways that it is not inherent uh, in uh, the labor system so it is that balance between class power which is outside and what that class power does in uh, confirming and, and instantiating uh, 
the exploitation of living labor and production. It's that balance which then becomes absolutely critical when we look at that whole kind of notion of uh, the totality of capital as value in motion. Furthermore, with the proliferation and increasing complexity of the social division of labor and of exchange relations, so grows the power of money. This is where the fetishistic side of money gets constructed. And this occurs such that the exchange relation establishes itself as a power external to and independent of the producers. What originally appeared as a means to promote production becomes a relation alien to the producers. As the producers become more dependent on exchange, exchange appears to become more independent of them. That leads into the idea that nobody is in a position to actually control the market. Money is introduced as a servant of exchange but soon becomes its despotic master. Adam Smith's hidden hand begins to take over. Producers become price takers rather than price makers. The gap between the product as product and the product as exchange value appears to widen. Money does not create these antitheses and contradictions, Marx explains. It is rather the development of these contradictions and antitheses which creates the seemingly transcendental power of money. We come across this also in the credit case, that something that began as a servant becomes the despotic master. And the despotic master of the transcendental power of money, I think, <coughs> says it all. Money then becomes a measure of individual wealth and power. As a result, money becomes a supreme object of desire. Even more importantly, as a means of production in its own right, it forms the basis of class power and class rule. That is, you could not have the nature of the class power we have in society without the specific distortions that money exerts upon value production. These contradictions echo across all of Marx's writing. His account of the labor theory of value is inextricably entangled with them. The topic becomes even more complicated as Marx delves into the multiple functions of money. It can be a measure of value, a mode of saving, a standard of price, a means of circulation. Or it can function as money of account, as credit money, and last but not least, as a means of production to produce capital. Several of these functions, it turns out, are incompatible. While gold is excellent as a measure of value, as a standard of price, and as a vehicle for saving because it is a metal that does not oxidize, it is hopeless as a means of circulation. The latter is better served by symbols of money, like coins, fiat monies issued by the state, and ultimately electronic monies. These forms of money cannot exist without guarantees as to their qualities, initially in relation to the metallic base. Pope Marx, the business of coining, like the establishing of a standard measure of prices, is an attribute proper to the state, and here the state and the capitalist system becomes crucial. The different national uniforms worn at home by gold and silver as coins are taken off again when they appear on the world market, indicating a separation between the internal or national spheres of commodity circulation and its universal sphere, the world market. The question then arises as to the interrelations between these radically different forms of expression of value. Gold or silver versus coins versus central bank money and national versus international monetary instruments. 
Just to complicate matters even further, Marx notes the possibility of a quantitative incongruity between money price and magnitude of value. He suggests that this is inherent in the price form itself. Prices realized in the market can yo-yo all over the place, but this is precisely what makes this form the adequate one for a mode of production whose laws can only assert themselves as blindly operating averages between constant irregularities. Value is equated here, in a sense, with equilibrium prices, or natural prices in the language of classical political economy. And these natural prices are defined as those prices which prevail when demand and supply are in equilibrium. But that equilibrium can only be reached in a market where prices freely move up and down in response to demand and supply conditions in such a way as to converge on that equilibrium. So the distortion which enters with the fact that the money form uh, does not correspond exactly to value is actually very helpful uh, in a market situation of this kind because it allows the flexibility and allows trading to go on uh, in demand and supply unevenness and to bring you to an equilibrium point. Even more troubling, and I want to come back to this uh, a bit later, is that the money form may also harbor a qualitative contradiction. And it's typical of Marx that he introduces this idea and doesn't make much of it, but when you think it through, uh, you find actually this is a pretty serious matter. And this qualitative contradiction uh, exists with the result that the price ceases altogether to express value, despite the fact that money is nothing but the value form of commodities. Things which in and for themselves are not commodities, things such as conscience and honor, can be offered for sale by their holders, and thus acquire the form of commodities through their price. Hence a thing can, formally speaking, have a price without having a value. The expression of price is in this case imaginary, like certain quantities in mathematics. On the other hand, the imaginary price form may also conceal a real value relation, or one derived from it. For instance, the price of uncultivated land, which is without value because no human labor is objectified in it. Labor, as opposed to labor power, is not a commodity either, any more than land and money are commodities, but they all have a price. So this is not a minor question, this is a major question. And what it is about uncultivated land, which conceals a real value relation, he doesn't say, and it leaves it tantalizingly open, and I want to come back to that. Any monetary system will create plenty of opportunities for anti-value to flourish, independently of the forces regulating valorization. If capital pours into speculating on the price of uncultivated land that has no value, then this constitutes a threat to the reproduction of capital since it diverts capital flow from productive to unproductive functions. This is troubling for the labor theory of value because, as the neoclassical economists early on complained, if, such, if so much is going on in the price realm that is outside of what the value theory is about, then why bother with some shadowy phantasm of a concept such as labor values that have no material existence? This is a classic critique of Marx's theory of value from neoclassical economics. Why not stick with an analysis of market price phenomena and movements directly and just work from prices and that's that? This is particularly important when money appears to go rogue on its own account 
with economic agents engaging in all manner of speculative binges and arbitrary credit creations in ways that seemingly bear no relation whatsoever to what valorization is about. So this question of how to handle uh, this issue of prices and value then becomes critical. Now the arguments of the neoclassicals would be correct if value theory was simply meant to be a theory of price determination. But this is not what the labor theory of value is about. By rejecting Marx's theory of value as opposed to rejecting the classical political economic version, neoclassical economics buries Marx's question. Why does laboring take on the alienated form it does under capitalism? And why can it not escape this alien character? If value is about alienation, then this is something that takes us onto a different terrain. Now, there is of course not a word about alienation uh, in any contemporary economics textbook. The neoclassicals reduce the laborer, along with the consumer and the capitalist, to a data point, to a factor of production. They abstract entirely from the person and his or her experiential world. And this is the focus of Marx's complaint in his examination of the fetishism of commodities. The social relations between people are reduced to relations between things, even as relations between things take on a mysterious and phantasmagoric social character. And of course, neoclassical economics studies the relations between things. The neoclassicals construct magnificent theorizations based on the monetized categories of land, labor and capital as fixed things, while forgetting entirely about laborers, capitalists and landlords and their unstable social relations. And it is, of course, unstable and evolving social relations and their ramification that lie at the heart of Marx's inquiries. It is alienated labor that defines the labor theory of value under the rule of capital. When bourgeois economics, interestingly, realizes its own social emptiness, the lack that pervades its characteristic formulations, it responds by giving Nobel Prizes to psychologists in the vain hope they can quantify a scientific material answer to non-material questions such as economic expectations, the state of consumer confidence or the fear of economic insecurity. When things go wrong it's amazing how much they resort to all kinds of moralistic terms like animal spirits, infectious greed, irrational exuberance, moral hazard. It goes all over the economics literature, it's absolutely astonishing. And these are all conjured up to explain away that which is inexplicable and invisible to bourgeois economic theory. Only Keynes seems to have understood the problem, but most economists read Keynes, if they continue to read him at all these days, for his technical formulations, while leaving the many pages devoted to the psychology of market behaviors and expectations unturned. Contemporary economists would be horrified at Keynes's view on money, and here I am going to give you a long quote from Keynes. When the accumulation of wealth is no longer of high social importance, there will be great changes in the code of morals. We shall be able to rid ourselves of many of the pseudo-moral principles which have hag-ridden us for 200 years, by which we have exalted some of the most distasteful of human qualities into the position of the highest virtues. We shall be able to afford to dare to assess the money motive at its true value. The love of money as a possession, as distinguished from the love of money as a means to the enjoyments and realities of life, will be recognized for what it is, a somewhat disgusting morbidity one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities which one hands over with a shudder to the specialists on mental disease. 
all kinds of social customs and economic practices affecting the distribution of wealth and of economic rewards and penalties which we now maintain at all costs, however distasteful and just they may be in themselves because they are tremendously useful in promoting the accumulation of capital, we shall then be free at last to discard all of these. So that was Keynes' contribution on this matter. In an economy where the fetish desire for money and the form of wealth it represents is omnipresent, when the surface appearance of well-being is measured in monetary units and when class privileges are conferred and consolidated by command over money power, and in a theory that places at its centre the idea of alienated social labour offers a standpoint from which to build a serious critique of capitalism. Money, says Marx, destroys the community, only ultimately to become the community. And if we are to keep Marx's labour theory of value alive these days, it has to be for its power of social critique, including that of the money forms, rather than for technical reasons. The fact that all forms of money permit social power to be appropriated by private persons does not stop at individuals. It, it extends, of course, to states, particularly those like Germany, that practice mercantilist policies. Uh, and it also extends, of course, to supranational institutions and corporations. The complex territorialities uh, of money systems add yet another layer of complexity to the foundational question of the relation between values and their monetary representation. Perhaps the ultimate irony here is the chronic need to find a material expression and representation for social values that led to the adoption of an italic base for global money in gold and silver could not function without social representations of what these metals were supposed to, be, to represent. The gold and silver, the materially represented values, in turn required a non-material form of representation that could satisfy the needs of an ever-expanding base of commodity exchange. Unpacking the contradictions and the problems that flow therefrom is one of the most compelling questions of our time. Now there are two uh, issues that I would want to add to this. I've got to the end of the part of the manuscript that is firmly written. There are two issues. I want to go back very much to this question of those items which have a price but have no value. There's been a great deal of literature in recent times on something called reputational value. Of course, I don't like the term value in this. But it points out that uh, the market price of many commodities uh, is set up in the normal way of cost of production and profit. But then added to it is something which is uh, representational that uh, the price of uh, Nike shoes is partly to do with reputation and it's partly to do and so reputational value starts to become significant and the creation of reputational value is seeing as something which is outside of the value theory because it's not a product of labor except insofar as you know the advertising and all of that is, is, is involved but it, it can be seen as an addition and what this means is that this raises the general question, uh, which is set up in cognitive capitalism and the like, as to what is contributed uh, by knowledge and by reputation and by uh, all, these, all these elements of advertising and all the rest of it. What is uh, con contributed? Is there a form of value 
which has gone underappreciated within the Marxian lexicon, or are we simply dealing with another way in which prices are deviating from value, deviating systematically because of reputation? Now, this is a, 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 a serious uh, kind of question because at some point or other it also tracks back uh, to the way in which uh, knowledge uh, can be created and used in a certain kind of way and the importance of uh, cultural artifacts and all the rest of it in terms of production. Now, on this Marx has, I think, some very interesting kind of questions about what is productive and what is uh, unproductive. Uh, and I'll uh, uh, give you uh, perhaps uh, the most famous quote that Marx provides us with on this. Uh, he deals with uh, Milton. And he says, Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, was an unproductive worker. On the other hand, a writer who turns out work for his publisher in factory style is a productive worker. Now, go back to the definition of productive and unproductive here. Productive for Marx is productive as surplus value not productive of a thing or anything like that, it's productive of surplus value. Milton produced Paradise Lost as a silkworm produces silk as the activity of his own nature. He later sold his product for five pounds and thus became a merchant. But the literary proletarian of Leipzig who produces books such as Compendia on Political Economy at the behest of his publisher is pretty nearly a productive worker since his production is taken over by capital and only occurs in order to increase it. A singer who sings like a bird is an unproductive worker. If she sells her song for money, she is to that extent a wage laborer or merchant. But if the same singer is engaged by an entrepreneur who makes her sing to make money, then she becomes a productive worker since she produces capital directly. A schoolmaster who instructs others is not a productive worker. But a schoolmaster who works for wages in an institution along with others, using his own labor to increase the money of the entrepreneur who owns the knowledge-mongering institution, is a productive worker. But for the most part, work of this sort has scarcely reached the stage of being subsumed even formally under capital and belongs essentially to a transitional stage. Well, of course, we've gone through that transitional stage and this has become, uh, as it were, a major kind of question of how do we deal uh, with the products, cultural products, how do we deal uh, and in what ways do they integrate with uh, the kind of system of value production and monetization uh, with which uh, Marx uh, is, is, is working. Uh, we can, I think, say reasonably well that if uh, all everybody ever did was to write the equivalent of Paradise Lost, we wouldn't live very long, uh, that other things need to be done. And so the question, uh, broader, a much broader question, but uh, I think the question of uh, cultural labor and what cultural labor is about and, and how that can be uh, caught up, and this gets caught up, of course, obviously, with the issues of reputation and knowledge and cognitive capitalism and the like. So there's a whole sphere of uh, action uh, in which this issue of the relationship between prices on the one hand and the price system on the one hand and the value theory on another is in a way up for grabs. And one of the reasons I haven't completed this manuscript is I'm not quite sure where I'm coming down on it. I'm thinking about it, worrying about it. And, uh, I think I'll try and figure it out in the next few weeks. But there's, there's something very, very important about this that needs to be uh, taken up. Uh, but parallel to this, there's something else too. And it is contained in the, uh, in the diagram. 
which is what is what is the role of free goods in capitalist production the free goods of nature and the free goods of human nature what Marx does is to actually talk uh, about this uh, in, in a very specific way and I can give you some just hints as to what this is about um, he says you know there's there are certain things which we can we can uh, take from uh, from the world uh, which cost us nothing uh, which are use values uh, and these use values are, are critical uh, for the way in which capital works uh, they're not product they're free gifts because they're not products of, of labor directly uh, and uh, but these free goods are very important uh, to the actual reproduction uh, for the production of uh, valorization and the reproduction of capital as he calls a free gift of nature he says as an object of labor something provided by nature free of charge as in the case of metals, minerals, coal, stone etc etc uh, of course such things may acquire a price even though they have no value if they are enclosed and become the private property of another and their owner extracts rents from them but in principle uh, we have uh, uh, free goods uh, coming in from nature. The same is, would be true in terms of, of human nature uh, and Marx says this about that, that the maintenance and the reproduction of the working class remains a necessary condition for the reproduction of capital and the capitalist may safely leave this to the workers drives for self-preservation and propagation. Even the self-learned skills of the laborers can be appropriated by capital free of charge and this is what capital seeks to do as much as it can. Uh, Marx kind of puts it this way, the socially productive power of labor develops as a free gift to capital whenever the workers are placed under certain conditions and it is capital that places them under these conditions because this power costs capital nothing while on the other hand it is not developed by the workers until this labor itself belongs to capital it appears as a power of capital it appears as a power which capital possesses by its nature now this has become a very important issue again uh, around some of the arguments that occur uh, around cognitive capitalism uh, a lot of appropriation of the free gifts of human nature uh, have been extracted uh, from uh, uh, particularly with respect to computing powers and peer-to-peer -peer, uh, computing and the like um, and there's the sobering case of contemporary digital labor uh, Michel Bowens, who's a founding member of the peer-to-peer -peer movement, uh, put it this way, uh, that under the regime of cognitive capitalism, use value creation expands exponentially, but exchange value only rises linearly and is nearly exclusively realized by capital, giving rise to forms of hyper-exploitation. While in classic neoliberalism, labor income stagnates, in hyper-neoliberalism, society is deproletarianized, i.e. wage labor is increasingly replaced by isolated and mostly precarious freelancers. More use value escapes the labor form altogether. And the use value creators go totally unrewarded in terms of exchange value, which is solely realized by the proprietary platforms. The average hourly income of those actually doing the work does not exceed $2 which is way below the US minimum wage. 
The prize form here conceals the hyper-exploitation in what Bounds considers to be a new neo-feudal value regime that is even worse than traditional capitalism. This regime relies increasingly on unpaid corvée and creates widespread debt peonage. Now, these forms of uh, exploitation which exist, I think, have to be entered into, have to be brought together with Marx's classic understanding of the value theory. And this brings me back to, to I think, uh, one very important point to go, go back to Marx's argument. We cannot derive our categories simply theoretically. We always have to go back to, you know, the, the actual situation and try to derive them. In some ways, I think there's even a case to be made that the distinction between Proudhon and Marx over uh, the money question uh, can be best understood in terms of the kind of class background with which they became very familiar. Uh, Proudhon uh, was uh, in the 1840s uh, uh, deeply enmeshed in the culture of uh, the independent artisanal workshops of Paris. Uh, so he's dealing with artisans and artisanal labor. And the structure of uh, production uh, in those workshops was uh, quite simply that the workshop was at the back, uh, the shop was at the front, and you sold your good you produced at the back, you sold it at the front, and it was that kind of thing. Um, this was not exactly a situation in which you would look and say there's alienated labor going on here. Uh, what was clear was that, that uh, the, the value of the product was not recompensing the labor put into it. Uh, and, and, and that therefore, when, Mark, when, when Proudhon starts to talk about what's going on in the market and talking about money and reform of the monetary system and, and trying to get things priced in, value, in, in, in labor value terms, in, 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 in labor hours terms, it would make some sense, I think, to uh, uh, the artisan uh, groups with which he, was, which he was working. And you might make the argument that he was drawing his ideas about uh, mutualism and associationism and all the rest of it out of uh, that culture and reflecting uh, that culture. Marx, of course, is uh, reflecting a very different uh, culture. Uh, and I think the best way to look at this is not to look so much at Marx, but look at uh, Engels. Engels, uh, when he came to uh, Manchester in 1844, and wrote The Condition of the Working Class in England in uh, 1844. Um, the introduction to that, I think, is, uh, is, is worthwhile reading because Engels, of course, was familiar with artisanal labor in Germany and workshop-style labor practices and processes. Uh, but, but in the introduction, he's completely astonished at the nature of the social relations which he saw in Britain. And of course, when he got to the factories of Manchester, he kind of looked and said, my God, this is something that is absolutely different. Now, we, of course, from our perspective, kind of maybe do not seeing the difference, but to him, uh, and I think uh, to Marx also, this was a shock, a total shock. Uh, and uh, Marx, of course, read Condition of the Working Class, and that's what put him together with Engels, and Marx started to recognize that the factory laborer uh, was, uh, the, that was the site from which he was going to draw his thinking. And in many respects, of course, uh, the theory of alienation of labor 
which is coming out, comes out very much about the factory worker in Britain and the situation of the factory worker in Britain. And I think there's a very interesting kind of question of how people at the time came to terms with all of this. It's a very nice, nice book by uh, uh, Marcus, uh, who's professor of English at Columbia, um, which is about Engels and Manchester. And what he points out was that Engels' description of labor, laboring in Manchester in 1844 was the first time that anybody had written down and come to terms as to what the hell this is all about. Dickens, who didn't write about this till relatively late in life, and Dickens was always talking about, you know, sub-proletariat in London and all of the kinds of merchant stuff and all of that. But Dickens couldn't write about it until he finally got around to writing about Coketown. And when he did, he didn't write about it from the standpoint of the industrial laborer, he wrote about it from the standpoint of the good, honest artisan laborer who's shocked as much by the practices of the industrial working class as he's shocked by the practices of the, of the owners. But the point here is that, that this, this difference between you know, what, what, what categories you would draw from looking at a factory system and what categories you would draw looking at an artisanal labor system, this difference is, is maybe one of the big uh, differences uh, that underlies the way in which Proudhon uh, approached uh, the question, uh, the theoretical question, and the way in which uh, Engels uh, the way in which Marx uh, uh, approached it. And of course, uh, uh, Marx felt that the factory system was the, come, was the way of the future. That was the future, but you were, you're looking at uh, the future of capitalism when you're looking at all those factories in Manchester. And so, but if that is the case, then this also kind of says to us, uh, how do we go about you know, rethinking the value categories of Marx and rethinking their relationship to the price system based upon contemporary conditions? Now, contemporary conditions are such as that you can go to the factories of Bangladesh and Shenzhen and things like that and imagine you're in Manchester and you wouldn't be far wrong. Uh, but there are a lot of other things going on as well which make it a much more complicated kind of, kind of thing. My own view of this is that the relationship between value and, and, and price system uh, that Marx sets up is a, is, a, is a good foundation, but it's a foundation for something that has to be somewhat broader. And if I take up these questions of, all right, what, what to make of these things that have a price but which have no value, what to make of reputational value, how to integrate questions of that sort into the dynamics so that we understand better. And in particular, how to deal with not so much uh, the, the, the basic contradictions which, which I think Marx very cleverly spells out as to why, why money is not the same as value and why money in many ways is the opposite of value and opposed to value, there's a contradiction there. But what are the further and more detailed contradictions which exist? So this is the kind of constructive work that it seems to me we need to do. We need to understand much better our own uh, kind of condition and the conditions under which uh, of, of labor on which we're now living. Now, there's no question in my mind that we live in, in a society where alienation is widespread. In other words, I don't think uh, we would argue that we're anywhere close to emancipation. In fact, alienation seems to me to be one of the crucial issues of the day. So in that sense, I think that Marx was correct to kind of uh, insist uh, that the social relation of alienation is foundational for what it is that we need, we need to be looking at. Uh, no matter whether we're looking at reputational value or 
Oh, that's weird. And can there be alienation attached to, uh, you know, uh, compensatory consumerism and, and, and the like? There are all sorts of questions which uh, need to be addressed there. But I think it's an interesting uh, way of, of, of using capital, as, again, as a foundation uh, for further investigations and using, I think, Marx's own method of kind of saying these things are changing. Uh, you find things which are at one point in capital's history seem to be reasonably benevolent in relationship to the dynamics of the system, only to become uh, horror stories as you, as you move, move forward. And the same thing I think applies when we start to think about uh, what the left uh, proposes and how it thinks uh, about uh, the alternatives and in what ways uh, we set up and decide what are the valid alternatives to a capitalist system that is plainly in a lot of trouble. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there and let's have a discussion about some of these ideas. Anybody want to make some comments? <laughs> comments, anyone? Yeah? Hi, um, I would like to know what is the role of appropriation in this debate of price without value? Um, Appropriation? Yeah. Yes, for example, because it <coughs> talks about reputation of price. What mm -hmm. about other kinds of things that don't have value, for the price, for example, sperm mm -hmm. that is sold in the market? Mm -hmm. So what is the idea of appropriating those things when the price gets um, abstracted from value? And as Marx says, the price appears yeah. as the thing that precipitates. Thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, there are, this comes back to you know, things in, that should be free gifts of nature. I mean, Marx sort of says, okay, there are lots of things that should be free gifts of nature and were free gifts of nature, but then they got enclosed, and the same is true of, of uh, knowledge that uh, you know, there's a big battle going on about the enclosure of knowledge or the freedom of knowledge uh, and, and uh, as soon as it gets enclosed of course uh, it, it can be commodified and it has uh, therefore a, a rent attaches to it and so rental appropriations have become very widespread uh, on, on these free gifts now, it's possible also for working people to uh, extract rent sometimes. I mean, somebody who's worked for capital in a certain way can build a certain fund of knowledge and certain experience and can at a certain point uh, actually kind of say, uh, I have this knowledge, I have this experience, you want uh, this problem solved, I'm the only one who can solve it because I'm the only one who has the experience and knowledge to do it. So it's possible to build, an, you know, um, again, uh, a certain kind of monopoly rent on, on, on what could be a free free gift. What what Marx and uh, is is arguing for uh, in his uh, future anterior kind of uh, discussion is a uh, is a different kind of society where the free gifts are indeed free gifts and should remain free gifts. And and but we're surrounded precisely by uh, systematic appropriation of anything and privatization and enclosure of almost anything. And, and that's, again, what, what Marx would argue is, a, is a, the spread of alienated relations 
uh, rather than uh, anything that's going on in the cause of human emancipation. So, do you think do you think that we should think about social infrastructure as a as a public good? Well, I, I think I think uh, there are many aspects of contemporary society. Again, you you get the difference between revolutionary transformation and reformist uh, kind of practices, and I, I don't. I like to think of revolutionary reforms, you know, those reforms which actually push you in a path towards something different. And I think that, uh, for instance, banking should be considered a public utility. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the innovation that has gone on inside of banking, which uh, we think came unplugged in 2007-2008, it didn't. It's, it's actually tripled since then. I mean, this is the, the astonishing thing that's, that's, that's going on and you start to look at the debt figures we were talking about last time you see kind of um, a lot of stuff which being which were being force-fed uh, without even 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 knowing it because uh, the experts are the ones who control the knowledge and the policies and the politics and and you know, you know and then there's an attempt which is not an unreasonable attempt to set up uh, alternative institutions like uh, uh, say credit unions or something of that kind which you know is, is better than, than than Wells Fargo which will give you 18 accounts that, that you didn't know you had and, and, and charge you you know I mean I, you know although again uh, many of those things you like to think uh, can, be, can be trusted but but uh, but, but again, having the uh, the knowledge that can actually allow us to to uh, regulate and, and and deal with them is another question. But I think the more we can roll back this kind of privatization of everything, the more we can uh, treat things as belonging in the public domain and uh, social domain and socialized. And the problem is that a lot of that is seen in terms of state ownership, but. Uh, as I think you can see from Marx's rhetoric, it's associated forms of labor, uh, which is the foundation of the alternative, not... Uh, I mean, there's many interesting things. I mean, you know, anarchists are fond of looking at Marx as being someone in favor of total state determination. He doesn't mention state power once in Capital. He does in the Communist Manifesto that uh, yeah. the instruments of credit should be in the hands of the state, you know, but, but uh, in, in, in Capital, it's not about that at all. Uh, but he does say you can't imagine associated laborers working things out successfully by just, you know, little groups here, there, and everywhere doing what they like. I mean, there's an issue of uh, how do you make sure enough electricity is flowing so that everybody gets what they need, you know, and how do you, how do you work that out? So he does say we've got to have associated laborers working together and planning, conscious planning. Um, and of course, conscious planning is immediately associated with state functions and. So people get turned off, but but Marx is you know kind of saying my analysis of how capitalism works says the only way we can get out of this system is is by conscious planning of this sort. And whether it could be ever be decentralized to the point where everybody could do their little thing and nobody would take any notice of anybody else is another is another question. Yeah. At the risk of sounding very simplistic, it seemed to me that representation was at the core of the way in which I think money is basically a system of representation, and that that it seems like equivalences would follow from that. But analysis seemed to almost reverse that, so that 
it is actually representation first and then equivalences follow from representations. And what I'm trying to think about is the question of what is it that capital cannot represent? What are all these things that somehow are not, when you talked about Milton for instance, and all these, this other, all these other forces that basically fall by the sideways or are misrepresented because the representation is inaccurate. So I was just thinking if you could speak a bit more about the question of why is it that this question of representation is so key? Um, because um, uh, if you could speak... Well, it's key, it's key in the relationship uh, uh, between um, value and money. And that's why Marx, you know, his language is uh, money as an expression or a representation uh, of value. Uh, and, it, and it needs a representation because uh, value is, a, is, is social and, and has no material, immediate material way of uh, being expressed. So it needs, it needs a representation. So that's, that's, that's why representation comes up in this instance. Now, how uh, capitalists would represent the alienation of labor? Well, capitalists don't represent... Uh, how the left represents alienation of labor is very important. And one of the things that Marx is saying is that uh, uh, Proudhon was accepting certain kinds of aspects of the representational schema that's set up about the relationship of, of money uh, to value, and uh, Proudhon is uh, not seeing them as dialectically related. He's seeing them as that you could work on the money thing, and if you work the money thing out, then everything would be okay. I mean, that was the Proudhonian kind of position. So, uh, what Proudhon was doing was accepting a certain form of representation, which Marx thought was wrong, and that the form of representation was one in which there was a dia you know. They're autonomous and independent, but dialectically intertwined, is the way you know Marx, the language Marx tends to, to utilize, and and that that if you then represent that dialectical relation, but also accept the independence and the autonomy that exists within it, then you can understand the dynamic that goes on, and you understand what it is you can do by reforms of the monetary system. And as you see, Marx is not saying don't reform the monetary system. He says reforming all the time, but we can do all kinds of, we, maybe we can do some impress, you know, uh, progressive things with it, like set up credit unions and mutual aid bank, mutual banks and all that kind of stuff. We can do those sorts of things, but uh, that, there's a limit to that because we know that the exchange value structure is such that it is representing, always representing, alienated labor. And that until we get to unalienating labor, as he describes as being the condition of a communist society, until we get to that point, you know, we still, we're stuck with this form of representation. So he's, that, that's the way you're playing. Now, can, can neoclassical economics represent alienation? No, not at all. Can't do it at all. And then you kind of say, well, does that mean alienation doesn't exist? And as far as neoclassical economics is concerned, it doesn't exist because you can't represent it. And so that representational system becomes very, very important. And when Marx is challenging, when neoclassical economics challenges Marx by kind of saying, hey, this kind of vague kind of notion of 
uh, you know, labor values and alienated labor is just too, you know, mushy to, to really bear weight of any kind of scientific uh, theorizing. But Marx is saying that's not the case. We can do some scientific theorizing on the basis of it, but it's dialectical, not, you know, positivist because the neoclassicals have the positivist model and they can't possibly put alienation. So what can be represented and what can't be represented is of course a very important uh, discussion, but that's a broader discussion. What's, what's going on in this case is simply what's the relationship between value and, and, and its monetary representation? And that's a, that's a very specific kind of question of representation that is involved in that. Yeah. In the, um so in the commodity form, Marx always talks about how labor and nature are sort of married. Um, but could you maybe talk a little bit about when, when we get into questions of you know cognitive labor? It seems like that that division is harder to think about, or is it? You know. Well, um, you know, the metabolic relation to nature is is, is foundational, of course, for all human action. Uh, the reason Marx doesn't deal with it uh, very much in relationship to capital is because he, he sees it as a universal category. It's true, he says, of all human societies that they, they have to manage the me their metabolic relation to nature somehow or other. So to talk about a metabolic relation to nature under capitalism is not or to examine the metabolic relation to nature is not a way of specifying what's particular about capitalism. And Marx is interested in you know, what is particular to capitalism. Some people would argue, and I think there's some truth to this, that by kind of excluding the metabolic relation to nature from any discussion of the specificity of, of, of capital, uh, he missed an opportunity. Uh, in the same way, he kind of says, well, you know, many other societies have had money, but under capital looks like this. Uh, he could have said, well, every society has a re metabolic relation to nature. Uh, capital, it's, here it is. He does some of that, but a lot of the time he doesn't do enough of it. I mean, people like, you know, Paul Burkett and John Bellamy Foster and so on have been trying to argue that Marx did a lot more of it than everybody says. On the other hand, they're saying that he said more than he really did say. So I think there's a problem. There's a problem with that. But I mean, I think I think I think I think it's better to admit that Marx missed an opportunity on that one. And and uh, and and again, this is something that we can reconstruct. And I think that you know the kind of work of people like uh, Foster and Burkett and so on helps reconstruct uh, some of that. Even though they, for my taste, they get into a sort of apocalyptic visions and so on, which I don't, I don't share, but I think there is a way in which that question can be approached in terms of what's a distinctive uh, metabolic relation to nature, which is characteristic of a, of a capitalist economic system. And I think we're seeing that coming to the fore very much in the nature of debates right now, that issues that were not of significance in the uh, 19th century and Marx are now uh, coming very prominent. And so we have to take that one very much into account. Yeah. Um, so the role of free goods. Last week, though, um, in focusing on anti-value in the, the moment of valorization, yeah. I felt that 
I mean, at least the certain types of political practice that, that comes from that to combat that, um, namely experiments with alternative currencies and so on, would seem to figure more, you know, in the, the Proudhonian um, camp, at least in terms of how you laid it out today. So, I mean, how do we think about how those two moments um, are connected more, namely um, the production moment and the valorization moment? And so in that way, I think going back to the banking, um, uh, issue might might be interesting, and of course, in those literatures today, I think Marxist approaches are condemned or criticized at any rate for overlooking a certain autonomy that the monetary system attains within the capitalist economy. I recently read a paper um, that focuses on the hybridity of capitalist money, um, referring to the, the fractional reserve system as, as a key yeah. feature of capitalist money. And, and how do you think that might figure into to this? Well, I think that figures in a lot. I mean, uh, in a way, <coughs> um, I think some of the, the Marx is writing about uh, this is, is much too... Uh, uh, I mean, why I, why I emphasize uh, the idea <coughs> that uh, money is autonomous and independent, but dialectically related, uh, is precisely, I think, to try to set up a framework of thinking which is, you know, which can address some of the, the questions. If it's, if it's seen as a, uh, the, the, if, if the money form is seen as being determined by value and that's what some people do and then I think you, you're, you're, you're lost you know because you lose the fluidity and uh, but it doesn't seem to me that that was what, what Marx was doing that's not what I sense that Marx is doing at all so I, I would agree with you if, uh, you if the critique is of those people who see it as being determined or not you know or broadly determined or something like that but, the money is determined by by the value. Val I think it's you know it's that it's that relation, which is uh, very very important. And there aren't that many texts which uh, emphasise that. Um, the one I think is kind of uh, very interesting is a book by Caratani. If anyone's familiar with it, which is uh, uh, actually very interesting on this. And he actually he sort of. Uh, one of the theses is he says, you know, Marx is far more of an anarchist than anybody ever thinks, and quotes all those kinds of passages that Marx, well, the sort I read, you know, which is kind of pretty much straight anarchist thinking uh, to some degree. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, um, keeping keeping the, 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 the dialectical relation in mind and not separating them and saying that entirely, you know, separated from each other because I think then you get into a thing of saying well we don't have to be bothered with the value stuff at all uh, we just simply uh, you know analyze the dynamics of the monetary system which is what a lot of neoclassical economic thinking does uh, whereas I think it's very important to try to keep together but exactly what the relationship is um, I think we need a good deal of work to to, to, to figure that out and I don't have uh, the skills, I think, to do some of that, on, the, on particularly on the financial front. You need people who are on the inside of the system, who know the system pretty well. Uh, somebody like Michael Hudson and people like that, I think, are more on the inside and, and can, can do some of that stuff. So, so it, it takes collaborative work, I think, to, uh, to try to 
they could answer some of those questions. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Uh, is there not also a, a temporal aspect to these uh, things that have price but not value in the sense that they are uh, behaving uh, somehow as a claim of one future value production? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. way in which the <coughs> land would be uh, eventually worked upon, and that way they behave somewhat like credit. Yeah. Well, yes, no, I, I mean, the temporality of all of this is kind of a, um, you know, very, uh, a very important question. And there's some very interesting books about time in Marx and how to think through the temporality. And of course, I, I argue that you can't think through temporality without spatiality as well. So the time and space of all of this is kind of rather, rather critical. That's the next lecture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the idea of uh, universal basic income seems to uh, raise exactly this uh, relationship between value and money when you think about how you define what would be universal basic income. So I, I'm curious to hear what you think about it and what, what can you say about it. Well, uh, <coughs> I, I mentioned this in the first class. I mean, um, Universal basic income, uh, you know, who's, who's in favor of it and why? I mean, the Silicon Valley crowd are in favor of it uh, and are pushing it. Um, and, and uh, you know, just simply being conspiratorial about it, I'd, I'd say, well, they have a vested interest in this because all of the technologies they're inventing are displacing labor like crazy. So we're going to end up with even more vast, uh, unemployed, disposable population that has no income. And uh, then they're looking and say, well, God, who's going to you know, buy our stuff, you know? So they turn, you know, it's typical. Yeah, they, they hate government, but then they turn to government and say, give them a universal basic income. Give them enough money so they can, you know, or get Netflix or something, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's uh, so, so, uh, and, and, uh, you know, the, the autonomous left, you know, the Negri crowd, uh, they're into this too, uh, for other, other, other reasons. I think that um, if you had a universal basic income, then people wouldn't have to work. And, and zero work is, is, you know, part of what they're, their aim is, and and that people should just be given enough money to should get a basic income, receive a basic income, and we should work towards a zero work society and maximize free time. So so uh, you know there's a progressive way of doing this and a non-progressive way. Now, if basic income comes out, which way will it be? Well, you've got a good idea, I guess. And to the degree that we've seen programs of this sort, I mean, let's face it, uh, the Bolsa Familia in uh, Brazil was a, a little bit down this way. And, and uh, the, the Silicon Valley crowd are talking about um, not just simply basic income, but um, basic income which carries with it uh, certain responsibilities. Uh, in much the same way that uh, the Bolsa Familia in Brazil rested on that you had to take your kids to school uh, in order to get the Bolsa Familia. Um, 
So that was a, you know, a, a redistributive requirement. And, and uh, you know, there are plans sort of being suggested out of Silicon Valley that everybody should put in a proposal for some sort of something they do, I don't know, culturally or, you know, voluntarily, or they would have to suggest some, some activities and then they would qualify for the basic income. So, so there may be things like that uh, in, in the works. So, uh, but I'm, again, um, to the degree that uh, labor is alienated, I mean, of course, part of the argument right now uh, it comes from these passages in the Grundry, so where, Mar where, where, where Marx says, basically, well, as technological innovation progresses, uh, so it's going to diminish uh, the possibility of employment and turn the laborer away from being actively involved in anything, all they become is machine minders, if anything. And um, the words are something like, a, and this is a miserable basis for the theory of value. The theory of value will no longer really apply, except uh, the capitalists will try to use it uh, as a means to, 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 to try to order uh, their own society. They need something like that to order their own society. Um, now, uh, again, there's a, there's, a, there's a big debate over uh, uh, that passage. I will talk about this next time, probably. Big debate over that passage in the Grundrisse where, Mar where Marx talks about the general intellect and the way in which the general intellect uh, is leading to uh, a radical transformation of uh, labor processes to the point where labor becomes redundant. In which case, if labor becomes redundant, then what's the point of having a labor theory of value? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, so, so that's that's a bit of the argument that, that Marx made. Um, the trouble with the Grundrisse is that uh, it's a great piece of writing and everything, but it's, a lot of it is thought experiments. You know, Marx saying, if the world is like this, then that and that and that happens, you know, and then kind of says, hmm, that was interesting, now I'll go do another one. Uh, and, and, and I think that, uh, you know, and they are interesting, but uh, we, 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 you know, and I, but I think the other interesting thing about that passage is that Marx is really talking about the qualities of fixed capital. He wasn't talking about knowledge. He was talking about the, the way knowledge gets embedded in fixed capital. It's being read as if he's talking about knowledge without the fixed capital. In which case, you would say all forms of knowledge are a form of value. So any old crap you write down anywhere is a, is valuable. You know, I mean, I, it's kind of obviously nonsense. No, Marx is kind of saying it's only the knowledge that gets incorporated in the fixed capital in a certain kind of way, which actually changes the productivity of labor. That's the only form of valuable knowledge. So knowledge, not, it's not that all knowledge is valuable. No, actually, most of it's not. There's only a small bit of it is, which is that part which go, gets embedded in intelligence, the intelligence that gets embedded in the machine, uh, which, is, which, is, which is put there by human ingenuity. That kind of knowledge is what, is, what he's talking about in that, those passages on fixed capital, not talking about um, knowledge, knowledge in general, but it's been taken as knowledge in general is value producing. And I go, wow, that's great. I can just sit down and write any old thing. And, Think any, think anything, and it's value-producing, which of course it's not. Yeah. Um, you talk about uh, historical forms of value and the origin of the value in classical capitalist societies like England. What do you think about Mexico? Is the same uh, 
value in, in, in no classical societies like Mexico or Latin America? Well, it would depend, yeah, again, um, okay, there are a couple of issues you're talking, talking about here. <coughs> and I, I will talk about this uh, uh, next time. There is an assumption in the Marxist literature uh, that there's one value. And um, I don't know where that assumption comes from. Uh, the passage I read about money, when, he, when Marx talks about money putting on different national costumes, the money system is territorialized. So there are currency regimes around the world. Marx also talked about uh, national differences in wages which are due to the fact that the cost of reproduction of labor power vary from one part of the world to another. Now, what this would say to me is if, if there is a relationship between money and value and the money system is territorialized, why would we say that the value system is not territorialized also? Well, nobody talks about that. Everybody assumes, well, value is value. And, and Marx certainly talks about world money, but then the relationship between world money and national monies becomes problematic. So we could talk about a world value scheme. We might want to talk also about value, you know, different territorialized value regimes. And actually, if you look politically, you'll see that, that actually a lot of geopolitics these days is about constructing that. I mean, what is the Trans-Pacific Agreement about? It's about trying to create a distinctive value regime which is opposed to China and to Europe and which is therefore a secluded arena within which certain value relations can be constructed. What was the Euro about, European Union about? It was doing exactly that. So in fact, what, we've, what we see going on is geopolitically construction of what it seems to me are territorialized value regimes. So when you ask the question, what, how does this all work in Mexico? The answer is, well, you're in, you're in, it depends which value regime you're in. And since you're in the NAFTA and to some degree inside of, uh, the proposals for the Trans-Pacific uh, agreement, um, that's where you're embedded. Now what we see in all those other examples is there's usually a hegemonic power within each value regime which is dominating that value regime and which benefits primarily from that regime. Germany undoubtedly benefited from the European Union in the way that clearly Greece did not, nor did Portugal, nor did Italy, you know, so that there is, you know, and the Trans-Pacific agreement entirely it's kind of weird because you know Bernie Sanders and now Clinton and everybody else is going on about how this is this is going to destroy US jobs actually this is a way of trying to preserve US jobs and trying to well 
not necessarily U.S. jobs, but preserve U.S. hegemony in the face of now whether that leads to jobs or not is another question. But it's about U.S. preserving its hegemony in relationship to all of the countries around it, including Mexico, which means that you know to the degree that you're inside of the U.S. Uh, regime, value regime, uh, you're caught in the, the dynamics of what that regime is about. So I'm in favor of starting to think about distinctive geographical value regimes and I don't see why that has not been discussed in the Marxist literature as far as I know at all. But it would seem to me logical given that, you know, and this again comes out, you know, Either the, ter either the money thing is so completely wacko in relationship to value that it can be terrorized be territorialized and value cannot, or there is a reflection within the monetary system of some territorialization going on in, and I, th I think there's I think I would, I would take that, that, that position. So again, what that would mean is that we would need to do an analysis of various value regimes. And obviously they're porous in relationship to each other, given the nature of trading structures. But um, the, the, the totality, the health of the whole system, you know, one, of the key, one of the key indicators of the health of capitalism is the volume of international trade and the volume of international uh, currency transactions. Rather good predictors of where capital is going. And if you look at them, then what does that mean? It means that actually the porosity between value regimes is very, is very open. But what we're beginning to see right now is a closing down. And in fact, in the last couple of years, what you've seen is a diminution of global trade and a diminution of currency transactions. And I think that uh, this, this signals uh, some possible problems to, for the totality in times ahead. So we can use we can use that kind of analysis, I think, uh, creatively and constructively. Okay, one more. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to this idea that there was a proliferation of uh, things having uh, value, uh, sorry, price but not value, um, so and the commodification of knowledge and honor. Um, and I was thinking about this in terms of last week and the discussion around anti-value, which it seemed to me had at least in part to do with a failure or refusal to be tagged with a price, things that would not be. Um, and so I was wondering you know, if you could talk a little bit about how the politics of anti-value uh, from last week, which seemed very much to be kind of focused on the credit system, uh, how might that kind of give us insights in what to do or think about with the monitors? Well, without, without going into, into great detail, I mean, a, a lot of... Uh, quite a lot of political activism around the world right now is, is mediated by um, what are called cultural producers. And the whole question of cultural production is a very interesting one. A lot of uh, people engaging in cultural production don't like the market, but at some point or other, like Milton, they have to go off and sell something for five pounds to get enough money to live. But there's a lot of resistance to commodification within what you might call the cultural mass. And um, there's, there are a lot of international relations which are set up, you know, in which money gets channeled through all of these 
biennales and God knows what. I mean, it's an incredible kind of boondoggles in lots of ways, but people are living off it. Uh, and, and it's a bit like having a universal basic income, but people you know, have to do things in order to get into it and do things. So there's a lot of radicalism within, within, within this. And if you look at some of the major eruptions, if you look at, uh, for instance, uh, the Gezi protest in, in Turkey, uh, the role of cultural producers was, was really pretty big in that. Uh, backed up by, uh, you know, it wasn't a classic working class revolt at all. Um, it was a, a movement of strata in the population, you know, middle class and, and, and you know, others. So it's a, um, so, so this, this would, would come back to this, this area of things that have no value but which have a price, potentially have a price. And who puts the price on them and how? And it comes back to knowledge also. Who puts the price on knowledge? Who encloses knowledge? And there's a big fight over this, you know, who, who gets the right to enclose knowledge? And the same thing would apply to cultural products. Uh, you know, who, who decides what is a good painting? Who decides what is, you know, a good, good uh, video? Who decides what is a, a good uh, cultural event? You know, and there, there's, there's, there's and, and, and should it be rendered through the market? And, 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 and of course, there are people who are completely embedded in the market and people who are deeply antagonistic to the market. I mean, punk rock, when it started down here, was totally anti-market. And, and a lot of uh, music gets totally anti-market. Then it gets commoditized. Then it gets brought into the market. So, there's a kind of, so this, is a, this is a site of, uh, of, of struggle where it seems to me value and anti-value are clashing all of the time. And it gets articulated through the art itself, actually, in many instances, and you can see it at work through the form of, uh, of, of artistic presentations and, and the like. At least I've seen a lot of it in those forms. And, you know, and it comes up with graffiti and all that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know where Banksy gets his money from, you know, but uh, he gets around and, and, uh, and does lots of uh, things. So I, I think there's, there's there is a very interesting area here about value and price and non-price and free, free, gifts of na free gifts of human nature and free gifts of nature. There's a very interesting kind of set of overlaps which I think are open for, for discussion. Okay, we're going to stop here and uh, we'll see you uh, in the...